Welcome to the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR, where we talk to business leaders from around Ireland and share their advice on how to create the HR systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, simply visit www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the HR Room podcast. Drugs, alcohol and addiction are very serious issues. Many people face varying levels of challenges when it comes to these topics and unfortunately, sometimes the challenges even affect their livelihood and the workplace. And with such serious issues being so prevalent, it's a huge challenge for employers to deal with these things with compliance, correct procedures and care. But how exactly do we do that? Well, as today's topic has been frequently requested and one we feel is really important, we simply had to bring back one of the best in the business to talk about it, Jennifer Cashman, Partner and Head of Employment at RDJ Solicitors. Thanks for joining us again, Jennifer. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm great. How are you? Good now, not too bad. All good. Looking forward to the chat. Uh, an important one, as I said, heavily requested, so we're looking forward to chatting about it. Um, and as always, we're joined by our very own Mary Cullen, Founder and Managing Director here at Inside HR. How are you, Mary? I'm great. Thanks, Owen. And brilliant to have you here, Jennifer. Looking forward to this one. Delighted to be here. Definitely. Brilliant. So look, let's jump right in, Jennifer. We won't waste, we won't waste time because uh, a lot to get through, I think. Uh, and again, as I said, one that's it's sounding really popular. We've got a lot of requests for this. Um, so Jennifer, I'll come to yourself first, I suppose, a bit of a context setter. Uh, what's the kind of legal background when it comes to, I suppose, let's say kind of intoxicants, first of all, for employees, employers, testing, any kind of relevant standout legislation when it comes to this stuff? Yeah, thanks, Owen. And, and it's interesting to hear that, you know, your your clients are have placed a demand for this topic to be discussed because certainly um, our team um, in RDJ, we've seen a huge increase um, this year, particularly in um, in our advisory work, huge increase around uh, queries on um, intoxicants, uh, intoxicants in the workplace, the impact of intoxicants in the workplace, um, and the more specific issue of intoxicant testing in the workplace, um, and a lot more employers considering in, in the introduction of intoxicant testing in the workplace. So it certainly is, unfortunately, something that does appear to be um, on the rise and something that does appear to be bothering um, um, em- employers um, from, from a legal perspective. So I suppose it's um, good to set the scene, as you say, and, and let's look at the legal background um, from an employer's perspective, um, as, you, as you said, Owen, to make sure that, that you know, employers are acting in compliance with their, with their legal obligations and maybe not straying outside of their, um, of, of their entitlements in that regard. So I suppose the main piece of legislation that governs intoxicant testing in the workplace is the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act of 2005. Now, all employers will be very familiar with that legislation. That legislation places a general duty on employers to provide a safe place of work and safe systems of work for um, employees and to manage and mind their employees' um, safety, health and welfare in the workplace. Um, and there is a specific section, I suppose, and something. This is something that, that I suppose was arose during COVID as well. This idea that you know it's not just employers that have obligations under the um, Safety, Health, and Welfare at Work Act. Employees also have obligations to take care of their own safety, health, and welfare in the workplace and that of their colleagues. And Section 13 of the legislation um, puts a specific obligation on employees uh, to ensure that they're not under the influence of intoxicants. Um, 
in the workplace to such an extent that they could endanger the safety, health and welfare of themselves or of their colleagues in the workplace. So there's a specific obligation on employees under the um, safety, health and welfare legislation um, not to um, attend at work if they're under the influence of intoxicants such that would effectively endanger their own uh, um, health and safety and, and that of others. Now, what, what are intoxicants? Well, intoxicants are um, alcohol, drugs and any combination of both. And drugs means legal drugs, illegal drugs, prescription drugs, over-the-counter drugs, um, so, you know, some some over the counter medications can have um, a significant impact um, on uh, on employees um, as well as the, the more obvious um, illegal drugs and and uh, alcohol to an excessive extent. So it is important to remember that that, that the, the definition of intoxicants in the work in, in the workplace um, from a health, safety, health and welfare work perspective encompasses all of those um, all of those types of, of medications. Now. Interestingly, the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act goes on to, to state in the same section 13 that places that obligation on employees to make sure they're not under the influence of intoxicants. It also um, provides for intoxicant testing in the workplace. However, that particular subsection, section 13, was um, only uh, due to become operative um, on the introduction of regulations um, by the relevant minister. And those regulations have, in fact, never been introduced. So there isn't as such any... Um, legal requirements, shall we say, for employees uh, under the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work legislation to undergo intoxicant testing in the workplace because those regulations have never been, have never been in, in, introduced. Um, so therefore, from a legal perspective, there's no statutory obligation on employers to test for intoxicants in the workplace. There's no statutory obligation on employees to undergo testing. Um, however, uh, they're, they're Conversely, is no um, prohibition on intoxicant testing in the workplace either. So the legislation doesn't prohibit the idea of intoxicant testing in the workplace. So from a legal perspective, where does that right or entitlement on the part of the employer to intoxicant test come from? Well, it comes from either the contract of employment, um, a policy, a, a workplace policy on intoxicant testing, um, or a specific consent of an employee to undergo testing. Um, or any combination of those three. Um, and, and generally speaking, in our experience, most of the employers who have provided for intoxicant testing in the workplace do so by way of a workplace policy or procedure, um, uh, rather than having it enshrined in a contractual provision or rather than um, looking for specific consent on, on, on each occasion. Definitely, so there's a lot to it and I can understand why it is potentially quite challenging. I suppose, Mary, as we said, I mean, we've got a lot of requests for this. I know I've had a couple of chats even with business owners, line managers actually offline that have requested this. And as Jennifer says there, it's, it's something they've in, in RDJ have experienced a little bit too and, and people coming to them. I suppose, Mary, from what Jennifer says there and she's alluded to it, it, it can be kind of, is it notoriously tricky, kind of a big challenge for people to deal with? I suppose just from your ex experience over the years, Mary, obviously working with a lot of clients, is this kind of a notoriously tricky bit of ground for people to people in HR to deal with? Yeah, I think so, simply because, you know, while you can draft a, a policy and procedure and, and attempt to put it in place, um, it's one that's likely to meet with a fair level of resistance, certainly in a trade union environment uh, or maybe environments where there isn't high risk activities taking place. So where you're more likely to see these kind of policies and procedures in place 
um, are, you know, maybe when you're driving machinery, when you're operating something like a crane or um, when there are high risk activities, both from an employee perspective and the, the health, safety and welfare of others, including customers, um, you're more likely to see them in place there. And that's where the employer typically has them. It, it becomes a little trickier when you're talking about environments where there isn't that requirement and trying to get such a policy and a procedure across the line can be very, very challenging. And I think because of that, we don't see a lot of it outside of particular industries and sectors. Um, and yet it continues to pose a particular challenge. Uh, I don't know the exact statistics, but there has been an increase in um, both alcohol and uh, drug taking, including prescription drugs since the pandemic. Um, and it is a more prevalent issue in the workplace. But the how to go about introducing such a policy is a challenge and continues to be a challenge. And again, you know, there's a, a very specific approach that you're, you're going to have to take. And really, that's around consultation um, before you put in place such a policy um, to ensure that you get it across the line and it's not later challenged. Um, and then the how to do the drug testing or our intoxicant testing piece also comes into it. Um, who's going to do it? Uh, and therefore, it tends to be the larger employers that that employ uh, people within the organisation in those specific roles. So Jennifer may be able to add a bit more flavour to that in terms of well, what testing is actually available and uh, how far can an employer actually go when it comes to intoxicant testing. Definitely, and I suppose it's gonna, yeah, I suppose it's gonna perfectly segue on to my next question, Jennifer, and I'll kind of link it in with that actually, just to keep the flow going. I suppose a lot of people are now envisioning, a lot of our listeners are now envisioning somebody shows up to the workplace intoxicated. I suppose what's the, what's the kind of procedure there, just to kind of, I suppose, add on to what Mary was saying, but just to kind of, I suppose, build it out a little bit as well. Yeah, so I mean, Mary raises some some really good points there um, in terms of, um, and I suppose back to the safety, health, and welfare at work piece. Um, the the le that legislation um, when it was providing for um, intoxicant testing in the workplace, which as I say has has never been introduced as such, but I suppose we take our lead from from how that legislation was drafted in terms of the types of testing um, that will be uh, acceptable from a legal perspective. Um, the legislation talks about reasonable, appropriate, and proportionate testing. Um, so, so that's that's really important, um, and I'll come back to that. Um, I'll, I'll I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, so, I, I suppose Mary raises the point that you know it's not maybe every employer that will be thinking about intoxicant testing in the workplace, and and this is really critical from a, a health and safety perspective because um, one of the the pieces I think that's often forgotten about here is that it is a health and safety issue and therefore we have to look um, at a risk assessment like we do for every other risk in the workplace. Um, we have to talk to our health and safety consultants, um, we have to look at our risk assessment, we have to establish is intoxicants um, uh, in, or in use of intoxicants in the workplace an actual workplace uh, risk that uh, can be incorporated into our risk assessment 
um, and should be incorporated into our risk assessment. And from there, then we we uh, devise out our policies, uh, which are then reasonable, appropriate and proportionate based on the risks that have been identified by our health and safety consultants. So, for example, as Mary said, in a in a in what we call a safety critical environment, where just like Mary said, you may have you know production, you may have um, forklift driving, you may have all of those those things going on, then it may very well be um, reasonable, appropriate, and proportionate to provide for random testing, or for example. Um, certain drivers uh, drivers now there, there are specific statutory um, provisions in relation to railway drivers um uh, even separate to the safety health and welfare at work legislation but taking into account anybody who might be you know doing that sort of activity then it may very well be appropriate based on our risk assessment to provide for random um drug testing for those employees but as mary rightly says maybe not so for office based employees all of which of course could be in the same could could, could be in the same organization so we have to make sure that our risk assessment um, sets out whether or not this is a risk in the workplace or a certain section of the workplace and then devise our policies uh, around it. I mean, random drug testing is going to be the unsafest type of drug testing from a legal perspective. It's going to be the most difficult to justify as being reasonable, appropriate and proportionate in the circumstances. So the more likely testing that's going to be introduced or going to be appropriate for workplaces is this idea of with cause testing. And that goes back to your question, Owen, in terms of somebody turning up and a supervisor or manager being concerned that the employee might be under the influence of something. It may be alcohol, it may be, as you say, a prescription drug, it may be an, uh, an over-the-counter drug. Um, and that, that supervisor then has a, a reasonable um, reasonable grounds for suspecting that the the employee, you know, either they're acting erratically, uh, they might be slurring their words, they they their behaviour might be um, unusual, and the manager or supervisor, of course, in that role of having this um, obligation to make sure that everybody in the workplace is protected from a health and safety perspective, um, may then have cause uh, to refer that employee on for intoxicant testing, um, either in the workplace now. The Safety, Health and Welfare at Work legislation does provide for intoxicant testing uh, by or under the supervision of a registered medical practitioner. So that is, again, always the safest way from a legal perspective to organise your intoxicant testing um, from a workplace perspective. So you may be, for example, if somebody turns up and you think they might be drunk um, or under the influence of alcohol, uh, then you may refer them immediately to your occupational medical specialists. Um, in order that they can then undergo some testing with your occupational medical um, specialists. So the supervisor or manager may have to take some steps around making sure the person gets safely to the occupational uh, medical appointment. Very little point in sending them out to their car if you're uh, concerned that they might be under the influence of something. Um, so you might have to arrange for transport uh, to your occupational um, medical practitioner. And again, ideally, that would all be addressed under your workplace policy, which, as Mary has correctly said, uh, there may need to be consultation on that policy. There is an expectation from a legal perspective that there would be a lot of the environments, the safety critical environments that would have um, intoxicant testing would have unions and they'd be unionised. So there would be there would be a requirement for um, consultation uh, with the unions around uh, an appropriate, reasonable and proportionate policy to have in place. Um, so generally speaking, there, there would be consultation and there would be a requirement from a WRC labour court and court perspective to, to establish that, you know, the, the policy had been introduced with the benefit of consultation and that everybody understood the policy and understood 
the implications if there were any concerns around um, them being under the influence of intoxicants in the workplace. So while you will see random testing, there that's in the minority of, of very safe to critical environments and most environments that introduce uh, intoxicant testing will have this idea of with cause testing um, and, and that will be a, a situation where um, a supervisor or manager may, may take steps if, if they have concerns. And it's a very important point to raise, Jennifer, on the, on the safety piece. And I suppose, Mary, what I had in my notes was how do, we, how do HR professionals deal when or manage when somebody comes in and is unable to perform their duties effectively, is what I had in my notes, Mary. But there's a big safety element to this as well, isn't there, for the person involved, for their colleagues, all that kind of stuff. There, there really is. And it is a bit of a challenging area because, you know, it's really important that you don't jump to conclusions because, you know, illnesses can present, uh, you know, for instance, if someone had a stroke, their speech might be slurred or um, if they were uh, experiencing other health conditions, they they may well be behaving erratically, walking erratically uh, uh, or acting in a way that's unusual for them. So it's really important that that, that training piece is done uh, in those kind of environments. And look, you know, throughout my career, I have dealt with with uh, various individuals who have presented to work um, in uh, clearly in an inebriated state and management having to act upon it. And it really is not simple. If you're operating in a safety critical environment, um, maybe like railways or operating something like Lewis, and there was a case, in, I think around 2017, involving a, a Lewis um, driver who was unfairly dismissed or, or found to have been unfairly dismissed uh, because he presented to work and, and there was a smell of alcohol off him. But I do think that there, you know, in those environments, you probably do have your OCK health, somebody who's available on call where you can send someone or someone in-house. Um, but that's not always the case. And in smaller workplaces, you know, how long will it take you to get that medical appointment? Um, and so it can become very, very challenging uh, trying to address those particular situations. I would always say a sensible approach and you have to have the person in mind um, and their well-being. You know, anybody attending work in an inebriated state um, is a potential risk to themselves, trips, slips, falls, um, even if they're not operating machinery. Um, but again, I, I'm very much uh, in agreement with Jennifer when she talks about, um, you know, having that sensible approach to it and, um, you know, having a clear legal basis for what you're proposing um, to do and, you know, sending someone home in their car in an inebriated state or ill in some way because you assume that they're inebriated um, is not sensible. And you really do need to take steps to have a plan around what you're going to do in those circumstances. What's clear is someone can't be at work. Definitely. And that's, that's as clear as it can be, I suppose, Mary. Um, and Jennifer, I suppose then with the, I suppose there's a couple of elements here that have raised this. I think the safety bit, colleagues bit, the assumptions piece. I suppose, Jennifer, how do I word I suppose if somebody, if a fellow employee, let's say, reports a, a suspicion or brings forward some kind of concerns, what does the employer 
do in that situation? Is there kind of an avenue for that or does it have to be directly to HR? I suppose it's something that probably permeates a lot of different HR challenges, but in this regard, how does that, I suppose, manifest? Well, I suppose, um, I suppose, look, that will depend on the individual circumstances of each case in terms of what the complaint is based on and what kind of objective um, evidences that is the employee bringing forward? Are they prepared to stand up and be counted? Because obviously if somebody is making an allegation against me in the workplace, I'm entitled to know who's making that allegation against me. There may be a context to why an allegation has been made against me by a particular individual. So I suppose it's the same as any complaint in the workplace in one in one to, to one extent. I suppose if it's a complaint that, some, that somebody comes up and says to the supervisor, I'm concerned that Jennifer is under the influence now and she's inside the forklift, driving the forklift, well, then obviously the manager is going to have to go and check that out because the, the consequences of not doing so could be fairly could be fairly significant um, and maybe go and form their own view as to whether or not there are reasonable grounds for, for being concerned. Um, if it's a less immediate complaint uh, and a complaint that either somebody was under the influence or that somebody is using drugs in the workplace, it come, I've seen it come up a lot in night shifts um, where complaints are made about about things that are happening during night shifts, where there might be where there might be a, a reduced amount of um, supervision um, on on a night shift, um, and and that has to be handled sensitively. Um, as I say, uh, an employer can't stop somebody from making a complaint, and there should be you know internal policies and procedures around that as to how the complaints are raised and how they're brought to the other employee's attention and whether or not there is good basis for bringing it to the other employee's attention, whether or not the complainant is prepared, as I say, to stand up and be counted, um, and whether the employer then has to launch some form of a, a formal um, investigation um, in relation to it. Um, I suppose we have to be cognizant, um, and it just from, flows from what Mary has said, that there are other legal principles at play besides the Safety Health and uh, Welfare at Work Act, there's the whole idea of equality, um, employment equality, so and the, the whole concept of discrimination that, you know, those who may be suffering from something like alcoholism are protected under um, employment equality legislation. So as an employer, we have to ensure that we're not um, treating them less favourably, that we're making reasonable accommodations for them if those reasonable accommodations um, would allow them to, to carry out their, their job effectively. I mean, obviously no employer is obliged to, to employ or continue employing somebody who has an addiction issue. Um, but having said that, an addiction issue is a disability for the purposes of the employment equality legislation. And we must explore as an employer whether or not there are reasonable accommodations that should and can be made for the individual. Um, um, and then there's, I mean, I suppose the wider concept of well-being in the workplace anyway, in terms of looking after people and, and making sure that, you know, somebody might be going through a very difficult period in their life, but that doesn't mean that they should necessarily lose their job. Maybe there's some supports the employer could put in place. Maybe there's a treatment program that they could be sent on if they would agree to go on it and that they'd be given some opportunity to, to mend their ways, I suppose. Um, the other, so, so there's employment equality considerations. There's also data protection considerations, um, uh, data around intoxicant testing and any sort of um, addiction issues that would be considered uh, a special category of data from the, from the perspective of GDPR and the data protection legislation. So again, employers have to handle that information quite sensitively and make sure that they have provisions in place from a data protection perspective uh, to ensure that if they're processing data around Text testing in the intoxicant testing in the workplace or disabilities or anything like that, that they have special provisions made for that and that employees understand how that data is going to be processed in the workplace um, because otherwise employers could fall foul of, um, of data protection provisions. And then the last 
piece of legislation that I suppose tends to interplay with this a little bit, and it goes to your point of, of maybe a complaint, is the protective disclosures legislation. Um, you know, a complaint that something is happening in the workplace might be a protective disclosure. So if it's a general complaint about health and safety in the workplace, it could constitute um, a protected disclosure for the purposes of that legislation. Um, so again, employers have to be cognizant of that legislation and any policies and procedures they might have in place around protected disclosures in the workplace. And then also there's the whole concept of anonymous complaints that sometimes happens, particularly in this area, um, you may very well get an anonymous complaint um, that, that somebody is under the influence or has been under the influence in the workplace. Now, the protective disclosures legislation specifically calls out that employers are not legally obligated to um, follow through on anonymous complaints because back to my earlier point, from a natural justice and fair procedures perspective, I am entitled to know who's making a complaint against me. Um, but depending on the nature of the complaint that's being made, an employer might decide to follow through with a particular complaint uh, if there was a wider health and safety issue. So there are there are a number of, of legal issues that need to be taken into account. The, over, the overriding piece of legislation that we have to think about is the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act, but there are other pieces of legislation that interplay here too that are very important um, to keep in mind in this area. Definitely, and a lot too, but again, broken down brilliantly as always. I appreciate that, Jennifer. Um, I think, look, just, I suppose there's two big questions coming to mind from what you've been saying there, Jennifer. Mary, I'll come to yourself for the first one, I suppose. And again, might not be a straight answer to this because of what Jennifer has alluded to. But I suppose in simple terms, Mary, what happens next? If somebody's found to be intoxicated or suffering from an addiction that prevents them from essentially performing their their, their role in the workplace, what does happen next? And, I'm, I'm, and I suppose when I'm asking that, I know there might not be a definite what do you do, but there might be a how do you do it as well. Can you just talk to us a little bit about, about that? What might happen next? Yeah, well, at the human level, I think, um, you know, for anyone who has dealt with someone who has addiction issues in, in the workplace and who is uh, presenting to work in an inebriated state or clearly under the influence, and that can be maybe severely hungover as opposed to presenting uh, actually directly under the influence of alcohol. And look, you know, we've all throughout the years gone to work parties and nights out and all the rest of it and maybe not showed up in the best state uh, to work the following day. That's different uh, if if it's not safety critical. You know, you come into the office, you're a little bit hungover, you've had a big night, whatever. Okay, it's not brilliant, but uh, there is a difference. It's about, I suppose, the regularity and the frequency of those kinds of behaviours or the seriousness of the specific circumstances at the time. And that's not justifying anybody turning up to work unable or unfit to do their job. Um, it's about taking a sensible and a pragmatic approach to it. The first point is, um, you know, how do you approach the person to say you have a concern? and that you're either sending them home or sending them to um, occupational health for testing or um, to check that they're okay. And how do you get them there? So it's the first consideration really is how do you stop them doing what they're doing and remove them from the premises in a safe way um, where they are safe and deal with the issues as such at a later stage. Because if someone's inebriated, you're not going to dismiss them on the spot, you know, which unfortunately employers get caught time and time again for doing something like that. You're drunk. 
don't come back here again. Um, you're under the influence of something, get off this site or whatever. You know, it's all about care for the individual in the first instance. If somebody has an addiction, and, and I've been involved in many of these cases over the years, um, sitting down with somebody, highlighting that you have a concern about their performance or how they're attending um, or presenting at work is the starting point. Um, offering supports in terms of, um, you know, addiction programs or supports uh, is one way to go. But remember, you're not a counsellor. That's not your job. You're a manager. You're there to, you know, tend to the business, but you've got to consider the individual. And usually giving people time to attend programs, um, maybe like addiction programs, often there are 30 days, keeping the role open for them, maybe paying them or not paying them, that's a choice that uh, the employer will make depending on the specific circumstances and creating the opportunity for somebody to address a concern. Often people with addiction will hit a rock bottom before they make any changes. And those rock bottoms can be at the family level um, and also at a, a work level and, and maybe society if you end up in enough trouble that you find yourself uh, in trouble with the law. Um, you know, those rock bottoms can be a pivotal point for people to bring about meaningful change in, the, in their own lives. But that being said, there's no obligation, there's no legal obligation for the employer to facilitate such a program. That's a, a more humane approach. But it is an approach that I have recommended and taken um, in conjunction with with. Um, both my clients and when I worked in-house myself, uh, give somebody the opportunity to change, give somebody the opportunity to, to deal with a significant life challenge for themselves. Um, but if that behaviour persists or if somebody refused to attend such treatment programmes or isn't interested in helping themselves, well, then your normal disciplinary procedures will apply. But again, being very mindful of the equality issues and uh, the fact that somebody is technically considered to be disabled in the workplace. 100%. That's a, literally the exact question I was going to ask yourself then, Jennifer, coming off the back of that. I suppose the employee protections piece, the disability piece, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Anything that, I suppose you've alluded to already, but anything that employers, HR team should be particularly looking out for when they jump into this? Because there is a couple of protections there, isn't there? Sure, there there is Onya, and I suppose um you know to to, to Mary's point, you know a, a positive um drug test or a, an acknowledgement from an employee, an admission from an employee that they they are under the influence or were under the influence, that's not enough to just then decide right your fires by, um you know there still has to be the natural justice fair procedures. There still you still have to follow your own in, internal procedures and the general principles of fair procedures. So there would still have to be an investigation potentially. Um, uh, now, an investigation, if there's an admission, an investigation won't always be required, depending on what the policy says, though a lot of disciplinary policies provide for an investigation um, and uh, sort of as a mandatory step where, where the outcome could be gross misconduct. So you may have to do an investigation regardless of an admission. It will be a short investigation, but nonetheless, there, it may be required. So you need, really need to check your, your policies and procedures very, very carefully. 
um, to see what exactly is required uh, under your policy. I've seen plenty of policies um, where employers are of the view that there's no investigation required, but in fact there is, according to the wording of the policy, in certain circumstances. So really important to check your policy procedures, but you'll be looking at investigation, disciplinary process, appeal process. So it'll be very important because, you know, you may have very good grounds for dismissing somebody, but it's not just the grounds for dismissal. It's also the process you use to affect the dismissal. Both are looked at in terms of the employer's response to the situation. Um, And you can fall down in your defence of an unfair dismissal claim for um, for failing to uh, for failing to follow a fair process just as easily as you could fall down for not having good grounds for, for firing the person in the first place. Um, leading on then to an equality claim and, and uh, disability discrimination claim, I suppose there should be no employer or HR professional dealing with any type of scenario that involves disability discrimination without the involvement of medical professionals and occupational medical professionals um, for the employer uh, where you're sending the person off. So, I mean, you know, if you're disciplining somebody and they raise a disability as a mitigating factor or as a defence to what's happened, then that is that is uh, cause to pause and, and uh, send the individual for occupational medical review um, and the purpose of that occupation and medical review is to see firstly, you know, arising out of what they've told you, are they fit to do their job at all? Um, and if they're not fit, are there some reasonable accommodations that the employer could make in order to um, make them fit to do the job as the legislation requires? Um, and sometimes, as Mary rightly says, there'll be treatment programs involved. So the occupation and medical professional will come back and say, look, they could undertake this treatment program. If they undertook this treatment program, then I would recommend seeing them after this treatment program to see if we can facilitate a return to work. And that's something the employer then will have to give serious consideration to from a legal perspective. Um, and then the person is effectively on sick leave for a period of time um, um, and will be treated in accordance with the employer's usual um, policies and procedures in that regard. Um, so, so it is really important to remember that you know, an admission or a test result isn't the end of the story. Uh, it could be the start of the story in, in some instances, um, but, but it does require an employer to, to, to pause and then think about, okay, what do I do next here now? I, I have either an admission or a positive test result. Is that enough for me to take action um, from a disciplinary perspective? Do I need to instigate an investigation um, and then a disciplinary and then an appeal? And is there anything that, that requires the intervention here of an occupational medical professional? So that there's a number of steps after the tests uh, that need to be taken into account. Interestingly, um, Jennifer, I always think when it comes to that referral to occupational health, that's a bit of a challenge as well for employers because um, from a GDPR perspective, that employee is entitled to see what you have actually asked the occupational health to to check and or to see so the wording of that is very careful and and how you present that information is vital do you have any guidance around that jennifer in terms of uh when you're preparing that because i've seen so many hr practitioners get this wrong where they're 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 saying something in in the referral form um, that later comes back to bite yeah, I see another podcast topic here, um, Owen, in terms of occupational medical referrals. It comes up an awful lot in practice. Um, and yes, there is guidance. I suppose the, the, the most practical thing I can say to HR professionals and employers in that regard is never put anything into an occupational medical referral that you would not be happy for that employee to see. 
um, because you have to assume that the employee is going to see that at some point. Um, and the the occupational medical relationship is 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 an unusual relationship because the occupational medical uh, professional is being uh, retained by the employer. Um, but there is a doctor-patient relationship created between the doctor, the occupational doctor, and the individual once they attend for once they attend for referral. And the occupational medical advisor must go through a whole other plethora of consent um, uh, scenarios with the individual when they go to see them. So the fact that you have reserved the right in your contract of employment to send somebody for occupational medical referral again isn't the end of the story because th- there is another th- there is another medical side to that. So never put anything into a med- an occupational medical referral that you wouldn't be happy for an employee to see is my first piece of practical advice there um, and assume that they will see it at some point uh, or indeed be told it by, by the occupational medical advisor. Um, the second place where we see, I, I suppose, this going very wrong is where the employer gets back a report and they don't like the content of the report or they're not happy with the content of the report. So they ring up the occupational medical advisor and they say, ah, listen, now you didn't take this, this and this into account. And, you know, could you issue me with an amended report in relation to this case law on this? Um, that again, that is an interference in, in by, by HR, by the employer um, in a separate process to, to, to a large extent, uh, which could be fatal from the employer's uh, perspective. So, so first of all, the, um, the, you have to make sure that you give all of the relevant information to the occupational medical advisor in advance of the appointment taking place so that they have all of the background context. But you have to assume for the purposes of GDPR and data protection that the individual employee is going to be able to see that information. So you should never give them any information that the, that the employee, that you wouldn't be happy for the employee to see. And that really is the most practical legal advice you can give in relation to occupational um, medical referrals and, and being very careful about how you fill out those forms. A lot of Occupational medical advisors will have their own forms, their own templates that an employer must fill out. Um, uh, but that doesn't that doesn't preclude the employer from from asking other questions that might be outside of the template, provided again that they're aware that any of that information um, can be released to the employee under a under a data subject access request. Mm-hmm. It shows how much there is to consider. I suppose the final question that we always ask on the podcast, and and I know we've we've covered a lot. So I'm not necessarily looking for more information, maybe just a bit of a summary or some, some key takeaways. I'll come to you both. I'll come to you yourself first, Jennifer, if that's okay. Any kind of final advice then for HR professionals, teams, people that might be facing into managing something like this? I suppose a lot of it, Jennifer, as you say, it is that clarity, fair and reasonable, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think first piece of advice, talk to your health and safety consultants. Um, talk to your health and safety consultants. Talk about your risk assessment. Your risk assessment might not have been done for a while, maybe it needs to be looked at again, maybe it needs to be refreshed. Um, look at, at that, look to see if intoxicants in the workplace is a risk in your workplace that needs to be taken into account. And if it does and is, then how do we take that into account? Are we going to introduce testing? If we are, what kind of testing are we going to introduce with the knowledge that with cause testing is probably the safest form of testing from an Irish legal perspective? Um, how does that interplay with our other policies and procedures in the workplace in terms of disciplinary policy procedures, data protection issues and how we're going to process that that data um, and is there anything additional we need to take into account in relation to that. Um, talking to our occupational medical advisors, I mean, I, I think it's really important to have that relationship with all of your external advisors, like your um, occupational medical advisors, talking to them about, you know, what testing is available, what testing is out there, what do they, what do they recommend. Um, 
you know, we understand that the reason the regulations were never introduced under the Safety Health and Welfare at Work legislation was because the issue of what type of testing, it's a very controversial issue um, because some testing is really invasive. Um, so hair follicle testing, for example, is, is a really invasive form of testing. Um, um, so so it's, it's about, I think, talking to, you know, not trying to deal with this issue in isolation and um, talk to your your support team, talk to your health and safety um, consultants, talk to your occupational medical consultants um, and uh, then see what you're going to introduce going forward. Have you thought about how you're going to deal with this issue if somebody does, uh, even if you're not introducing testing, how are you going to deal with the issue if somebody does turn up to the workplace um, under the influence or seemingly under the influence um, um, of intoxicants? How are you going to deal with that? Uh, situation, you know, have you got your managers trained? Um, and then I suppose the wider, as I say, the wider well-being issue, have you got your mental health first aiders in the workplace? Um, you know, have you got support structures in place for employees? Um, and is this, have you got a culture of being able to talk about these things openly? Um, so, so that people feel that they have support if they are going through, I mean, everybody goes through difficult periods in their lives. It doesn't mean that, as I say, they should necessarily lose their jobs. Um, but have you got the type of support workplace there that, that people feel they can come and look for support and that that support will be provided to them um, if they look for it. 100% and similar question to yourself Mary to, to close that I mean a lot of this and if you want to get things like this right it does require that multifaceted approach that Jennifer is mentioning and I suppose what you do and how you do it is almost equally as important Mary isn't it? hundred percent and you're a hard act to follow follow Jennifer because you kind of said it all so my summary will be a summary um I agree with everything you've said Jennifer it, you know it, it's about a sensible pragmatic approach don't forget the human being in the center of all of this and um, and you know in HR I understand because I've sat in the shoes of an in-house HR practitioner and a manager coming to me and saying someone has to go uh, and people jumping up and down and screaming and shouting and saying, you know, this person has to be out of the business and HR people being in a very compromised position. So as I always say, it's stop, pause, think, Cam, um, Cam, whoever you're dealing with, using all your skills of uh, diplomacy and uh, people skill to ensure that you're not jumping um, to the beat of someone else's drum just because they're upset about something that has occurred. There are many facets to um, something like this, including that you might be able to get an appointment for somebody to go to uh, Oc Health immediately unless you have an arrangement already in place with them for that kind of facility. Uh, and so you may miss an opportunity for any kind of testing at all. So it's really put in place all your steps, your policy, your procedure, your position point, how as a business you're going to address these kind of issues like Jennifer says um, and take, keep a, a, a cool head and have a calm approach to something like this. You actually could fundamentally uh, help somebody in these circumstances to change what is a devastating pattern of behavior for them um, by intervening in some way. But it doesn't always have to be the final gross misconduct, you're gone in all circumstances. So take take a, a slow approach to it. Yes, so look, lots to think about and delighted to get so many, I suppose, great insights from yourself, Mary, and from you, Jennifer. So really 
appreciate your time and your insights again really important topic so i'm glad we got to spend a fair bit of time on it going into all the ins and outs so really do appreciate it thank you to everyone for listening we'll catch you next week for the next installment of our podcast so don't forget to click subscribe and join the discussion on our social media channels as we are talking about a particularly tough topic today if anyone is affected or wants to know more about this topic do please visit the various sites and resources associated with this topic if you are enjoying these episodes, do please feel free to share them with colleagues, friends, and family. And even better, if you can leave us a review on whatever platform you're on, we'd really appreciate it. And as always, for HR consultancy services and management you can trust, get in touch with us today at insidehr.ie. Thank you, Mary, and thank you, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, like and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see you soon.